This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have an update on the latest war news. It's the March 13th, 1942 edition of the CBS News of the World. With reports on the Russian front, along with live updates from Sydney, London, and Washington, D.C. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. News of the World, Friday, March 13th. Once again, Columbia's correspondents from world capitals and the Southwest Pacific are ready to report the latest news direct by shortwave radio. This morning, we shall call in London and Washington and try to get you a report direct from Sydney, Australia. In addition, Harry Marble will give you news from other points. But first, briefly, here are a few of today's highlights. British planes raided Kiel during the night, starting large fires. In the Far East, all dispatches indicate a lull in fighting, both in the Southwest Pacific and in Burma. Here at home, the Metropolitan Opera star, H.O. Pincher, was taken into custody by the FBI as an enemy agent. And now, Harry Marble. Before calling in our first point this morning, here is the situation in Russia. The most active sector on the long front is reported to be in the Ukraine. There is no confirmation, however, of earlier reports that Marshal Timoshenko has thrown 1,500,000 soldiers into the battle lines of the South. A more, a more conservative estimate puts the Red Army force at 200,000 men. Nonetheless, the Germans themselves admit heavy and continuing Russian attacks all the way from Oryol... 200 miles south of Moscow to Targenrog on the Sea of Azov. German sources mention also that Soviet forces are on the offensive on the Crimean Peninsula. For the news direct from abroad, we switch to Sydney, Australia for the report of John Raleigh. This is Sydney. There have been no late reports on further bombings of the Japanese invasion fleet in and around New Guinea. Well-informed sources take this to mean that the enemy's armadas have been dispersed. More time has been gained, said an officer, and that is what we need just now. He finished. However, authorities are far from optimistic concerning a so-called decision to abandon the invasion of Australia. Japanese plans of operation have been temporarily upset, which probably means the enemy will simply wait until more reinforcements arrive in the vicinity of his jumping-off point before moving south to this continent, predict reliable circles. Our communiques tonight 
for it is evening there, merely contain the assertion that Royal Australian Air Force planes conducted reconnaissance flights over enemy-occupied territories encountering some resistance. George Moresby, according to a correspondent there, was machine-gunned today by Japanese fighters, but no great damage was done. The important airfields that lay in Salamaro, recently captured by the enemy, may have been rendered useless for the time being by RAAF bombers, believe airmen in the north. Planes harassing Allied installations of Moresby are thought to have come from Rapal in New Britain. There is no shortage of food in Australia, stated the Commonwealth Minister of Commerce, Mr. Scully, who strongly criticized panic buyers and persons who spread false stories of thin riders. We are probably better off from a food standpoint than we have ever been in the history of Australia, and that goes for the private family as well as emergency stores for the time for the people as a whole, said Mr. Scully. Prime peril to Australia would be the failure of transport, thus making shipping of foodstuffs extremely difficult. This contingency has been prepared for by the storage of food catches at principal depots throughout the continent. A refreshing note has crept into local press editorials in Sydney within the past few days. The Sydney Daily Mirror, in a leader called Hit and Hit Again, echoes this sentiment. Says the mayor, quote, Bold and striking episodes like the Salomon bombing make the strongest military argument that could come from this side of the ocean. The event portrays that Australia's appeal is not a cry for rescue sent up out of the depths. It is a fighting call made in the spirit of attack and indicating roads to victory. American people, fired by their own share in the Salomon performance, will have a double desire to pour more force into a battle marked out by its enterprising offensive. Unquote. The show to the north was a splendid one and surely indicative of what American and Australian airmen can do together. This is Friday the 13th here, but tomorrow there still holds sadness and ill luck for many an Aussie mother and father. Hence those in the know. This is John Raleigh in Sydney. I return you now to Columbia in New York. Back in New York and next across the Atlantic to the British capital. We take you now to London and Charles Collingwood. Good morning. This is London. The last news from Burma is that the British have stabilized their position at Therawadi, which is on the Chrome Road, which runs from Rangoon to Mandalay. Last night, the Royal Air Force made a heavy raid on the German naval base at Kiel. In the shipyards at Kiel lies the badly battered German battleship Gneisenau. The British Air Ministry says that many bombs were dropped in the shipyard and that many fires were left burning. Eight British planes are missing. This raid is part of what's called here the RAF Spring Offensive. It isn't spring yet, but sometime next week, the sun crosses the equator. To astronomers, that means spring. And sometime soon, not long after the technical advent of spring, will come that strategic spring for which the general staffs of the world have been waiting. From every war front of the world come signs of that preparation. Like everyone else, the British are preparing for what they know will be a dangerous spring. The curve of production in Britain is going up, and the curve of consumption is going sharply down. The British have come through a hard winter. It's been something of an ordeal for them to sit here, helpless, watching their armies and the armies of their empire and their allies 
pushed out of one vital bastion after another. Always they have felt that some of the responsibility was theirs. But with each new disaster, it seemed more impossible for them to do anything about it. And all during the winter, the British have felt the slow turn of the screw pinching their standard of living. In the last six months, the quality of British food has dropped. There's been less to eat, less to drink, less to smoke, less to wear. How has the British come through this third winter of the war? On the answer to that question depends much of the answer to the question, how will Britain come through the spring? First of all, it ought to be said that this winter has not dulled the British hope and faith in victory, nor has it changed their determination to win that victory. But as the London Times says wisely this morning, it has imposed a strain on minds and nerves which may in time blunt the edge of the fighting temper if it is not relieved. The tensions, as the times, will be most fully released when some new front of war can be opened up on which the main British forces can be seen in offensive action against the enemy. That time will certainly come, remarks the times. But there is more preying on the British mind than the lack of a fighting front near to home. It's something they realize themselves. It's back of the call for more urgency, more austerity in the national way of life. The British themselves feel that something is missing from their attitude toward the war. They've accepted sacrifices, not mutely and grudgingly, but proudly as a contribution they can make. But something more is needed than mere sacrifices. The British feel that something positive is missing. The London Times defines it this morning as the power of superhuman achievement. Something like that does seem to have gone out of the British temper this winter. An almost religious fervor, which was there at the time of Dunkirk and was there during the great air raids of a year ago. No one doubts that the British can achieve again that power of superhuman achievement. But how? What is it that will bring back Britain's great spirit? Let me quote the Times again. The Times says the people of this country need a clear vision of the supreme issues for which they fight. The United Nations require a plan of their own. Only leaders who proclaim their goals, says the Times, will be answered with the fire and passion that makes a crusade. This is Charles Collingwood in London, returning you to Columbia in New York. For the latest developments in our own nation's capital, we switch to Washington for the report of John Purcell. American naval and air units are continuing their damaging blows against Japan's thinly spread communication lines in the Pacific. Navy spokesmen here believe that the increased tempo of naval action in the last few days will gain valuable time for the strengthening of defenses in Australia. The latest American successes have had an important effect in weakening Japan's bridge of ships stretching 1,800 miles from her mainland to the shores of New Guinea. Admiral Thomas C. Hart, former commander of the United Nations Naval Forces in the Southwest Pacific, said that the enemy's growing losses were bound to be of great future concern to her. Naval experts say that Japan's ship losses must inevitably slow up her forward momentum. But they warn against undue optimism in view of the fact that Japan, before the war started, had a sizable merchant marine fleet. The bright side of the picture is envisioned more from the long-range point of view. Japan's capacity to build ships is limited and cannot match that of the United States. Meanwhile, large American convoys have been moving into the Southwest Pacific, and American aerial units, including flying fortresses, are now based on Australia. Military men here say that a Japanese invasion of the Australian continent is almost a certainty, despite the extension of the enemy's lines and her losses in ships and manpower. 
They expect a three-pronged drive on the northern bases of Broome, Wyndham, and Darwin. Occupation of these key points would give Japan almost complete domination of the southwest Pacific area. It is the opinion here that she would not have to advance inland, since aerial units from these bases could dominate Allied troops, moving against them through the great desert country that covers Middle Australia. Here in Washington, President Roosevelt is reported considering the Canadian plan for wage control against the dangers of inflation. This system prohibits salary increases, but allows bonuses for rises in the cost of living. The administration has been reluctant to tamper with the salary problem, but recently there has been an increased demand for some kind of control. During the last session of Congress, Bernard Baruch, head of the War Industries Board in 1918, advocated a ceiling over wages. The spiral of inflation, said Baruch, cannot be checked without control of wages and salaries. And now, Senator Walter F. George, an administration leader, says that the country is faced with the necessity of tying wages to the general price structure in order to avoid inflation. The truth is, he said, that we are not going to be able to win this war unless we are willing to receive less income. This does not apply to labor only, but applies to everybody. Substandard wages should be raised, Senator George said, and added that the rule of reason must prevail in considering the whole problem. And families of civilians who are killed, disabled, or captured by the enemy in American outposts will receive temporary cash benefits. These will range from $30 to $85 a month, the Federal Security Administration has announced. We return you now to New York. That was Washington. Enemy submarines continue their operations in the western waters of the Atlantic. Four survivors of an American tanker who landed late last night at Philadelphia told a harrowing story of their experiences. They said that after the enemy U-boat had sunk their ship, it rammed and sank two lifeboats and a life raft crowded with helpless survivors. Russia, persisting in its charge that the Vichy government is handing over French warships to Germany, said today that the Germans were operating special naval schools at numerous French ports to train German seamen to operate the ships. It was asserted that several thousand German seamen were now at Toulon, the great Mediterranean naval base in unoccupied France, to form crews for the 26,500-ton battleship Dunkirk. Further, it said, Grand Admiral Eric Rader, German naval commander-in-chief, had issued a secret order for formation of German crews for ships handed over by the French to be ready by April 10th. Russia broadcast its charge over the Moscow radio, quoting a Cairo dispatch of the official news agency, TASS. Now here is the situation in Rio de Janeiro this morning. The police of the Brazilian capital are reported on the alert to prevent any recurrence of yesterday's anti-Axis riot, during which German business establishments were wrecked and Nazi sympathizers beaten. The chief of police of Rio warned citizens that such demonstrations were harmful to the nation's interests. The violence resulted from anger over the loss of four Brazilian ships sunk by Axis submarines in the Atlantic since February 15th. In retaliation, the Brazilian government declared a state of emergency, gave President Vargas authority even to declare war, and decreed the confiscation of sufficient Axis property to compensate for the sunken ships. And that's the news from Brazil.